I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, as we seek to hear God's Word for us from these verses. The title of the message is, Why You Should Take Godliness Seriously. In verse 3 of this first chapter of 2 Peter, Peter tells believers that God has provided all things that are needed for godliness. In verse 4, he goes on to reveal that the promises God has made to believers are aimed at producing godliness. What Peter's telling us is that God saved us to live a godly life. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to call believers to pursue godliness. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. God, we pause now in this moment coming to hear the voice of God speak to us from the pages of your book. Oh God, please speak loud and clear and unmistakably. God, may your spirit say with my voice only that which you desire to be said. May the message of these verses come through crystal clear and with great power. Help us to hear it, receive it, and be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. From 2015 to the middle of 2022, a man named Jeffrey Kriv received 51 tickets, but only paid two. He had become pretty good at beating his tickets in court by telling a, a story that explained his behavior. I want to give you three examples of stories that he told when he went to court. In January of 2021, after he was spotted running a red light, this is what he said. Well, 
That morning I broke up with my girlfriend and she stole my car. This is what he said in August of 2021 to a different judge when he was fighting a speeding ticket. Yeah, I broke up with my girlfriend earlier that morning, had a knockdown, drag out fight, verbally of course. She took my car without my knowledge. Another instance, in May of 2022, contesting another speeding ticket, he said, I broke up with my girlfriend that day and she took my car without knowledge. I didn't get my car back for like three days, but it was her driving the car. You're noticing a pattern, I assume. It was discovered out of 51 tickets he went to court for, he told some version of that same story 44 times without letting on ever that he himself worked for the Chicago Police Department as an officer. It's hard to respect an officer of the law who doesn't bother to obey the law himself. But what about a person who professes to know Christ and love Christ, but doesn't think it's important to obey Christ? What about someone who says they follow Christ, but they don't live at all like Christ? You see, too many of us who call ourselves Christians don't take growth in godliness seriously enough. And here's the thing, if you want people to take your Christianity seriously, then you have to take godliness seriously. Listen, if you don't live like a Christian, why should anyone believe that you are a Christian? For that matter, why should you believe you're a Christian if you don't live like a Christian? In the verses we're looking at this morning, Peter stresses the importance of godliness. The message is this, do your best to grow in godliness because that's the evidence that you're a Christian. Do your best to grow in godliness because that's the evidence you're a Christian. In these verses, there are three principles about growth in godliness. Here's the first one. Growth in godliness calls for the utmost effort. Growth in godliness calls for the utmost effort. This is in verses five through seven. Now verse five begins with the words, now for this very reason also. What reason is he talking about? Well, he's referring to what he said in verses three and four. You remember we looked at this last Sunday night. This is where he said, God's given us everything we need for godliness and his purpose for us is to live godly. Based on that fact, for that reason, Peter says, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And the list goes on, and we'll look at that in just a minute. So based on the fact that God has given us all that we need to live godly, and his design is for us to live godly, therefore we should apply all diligence in pursuing godliness. 
And what we see in verses 5 through 7 is a list of different Christian virtues. We might call them Christian character traits. Characteristics that should describe and define Christians. These are things that should be present in the life of all believers. Now, I'm going to use the word godliness to summarize this list because that's what Peter does in verse 3. But, but what we're talking about here is the need to pursue godliness. And he says, applying all diligence. That means we have to work to see these virtues present in our lives and increasing in our lives. Applying all diligence Add one virtue on top of the others is the way he describes it. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Supplement, add to. So we should seek to have all of these virtues present and at work. When he says apply all diligence, that simply means to expend your best energy and effort. In other words, do the best you can. Work hard at it. Give the utmost effort to see that all of these virtues are present and growing, increasing in your life. Listen, how important is godliness? It's important enough that we're commanded to give it our absolute best effort. Now let's just look at these virtues one at a time. The first in the list is faith. That refers to your trust in and commitment to Jesus, saving faith. That's where the Christian life begins. That has to be first. Repenting of your sins, putting your trust, your faith in Jesus. But that's just the starting point. Once you have come to faith, he says you want to add to or supply or supplement your faith in Jesus with these other character traits that define a godly life. The second character trait of a godly life is moral excellence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. A person's morals are the principles that guide his behavior. Your morals determine your view of right and wrong. So moral excellence refers to a life that is lived according to the very highest moral standards. What that means practically for you and I as Christians is that our moral standard should be God's Word. We should live lives that reflect the standard of God's Word. Morally, we should live according to what the Bible teaches. The next character trait of a godly life is knowledge. Knowledge here refers to the knowledge of God's will and His ways that we as Christians need to live. Think about it. If you're going to live a life according to God's will, then you've got to know what God's will looks like, right? You need to know what God's intention and purpose is for you. You need to know God's ways so you can adapt your life to His ways. So to live a godly life, you have to know what a godly life looks like. So you need knowledge. So to your faith, make sure you have moral excellence. Make sure you have the knowledge of God's will and ways. The fourth character trait of a godly life is self-control. 
Self-control is the ability to control your desires and actions. It's the power to control your appetite. It's the power to control your speech. It's the power to control your sexual desires. It is the ability to restrain all the desires and passions of your human nature. Self-control. And there is no godliness without self-control. The fifth character trait of a godly life is perseverance. Perseverance means the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. For the Christian, perseverance is the ability to remain faithful to God when you're undergoing some type of difficulty or, or suffering. It, it could mean remaining faithful in the face of false teaching. You don't give in to it, you stay faithful. It could mean remaining faithful when you're being persecuted despite the, the hardship and the persecution on you. You remain faithful to Jesus. Perseverance, the ability to remain steadfast in the faith no matter what happens. The sixth character trait of a godly life is godliness. Now, I've already mentioned I'm using the word godliness to kind of as a blanket word to describe all of these character traits because that's kind of what Peter does. But he also lists godliness as a specific virtue. And what it means in this case is devotion or loyalty to God. Every Christian should be characterized by loyalty to God. Devotion to God. The seventh character trait of a godly life is brotherly kindness. This is the Greek word Philadelphia. It could be translated brotherly love. It refers to the love and affection that exists within a family. Because believers are family, according to the Bible, brothers and sisters in Christ, this kind of family love and affection should be present among us. We should treat one another like family. Romans 12.10 tells us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's the same word. Brotherly kindness, what does that look like? It looks like loving care and concern for those among us who are in need. It refers specifically to the love we have for one another as believers. The eighth character trait of a godly life is love. This is the Greek word agape. It has been called the crown jewel of all Christian virtues. And this love is a distinctly Christian word. It, it virtually is non-existent outside of Christian usage. And it goes beyond just the love we share for one another. It's universal in scope. This is the kind of love that loves expecting nothing in return. This is a love that, that's far more than just emotion. This is a love of action. This is a love that places others first and seeks their benefit above your own. This is a self-sacrificing love. A love that's willing to sacrifice for the good of others. It's a love that's modeled perfectly by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are the virtues that he lists. 
we should be possessing and pursuing as Christians. You are commended, believer, not commended, excuse me, you are commanded, believer, to do your best to both possess and grow in all of these areas. Remember what verse 3 said, God's already given you what you need for godliness. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You do understand these virtues are produced in your life by the Holy Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit. But you and I are called to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you have to take the time and make the effort to see each of these grow in your own personal life. Now, I'm just going to make a suggestion about how you might want to do that. What if you choose one of these virtues every month and you're going to seek to cultivate that virtue in your life for this month. February, you could work on moral excellence. March, you could work on knowledge. April, you could work on self-control. You kind of get the idea. During the month, you pray every day specifically that God would help you to grow in that area. And then during the month also, what you want to do is identify practical things that you can do to practice that particular virtue to exercise it in other words for the month let's suppose you're working on self-control well in addition to praying that month for god to help you to have self-control you could practice self-control by practicing what we call self-denial at the heart of self-control is being able to say no to the desires of your human nature. So to practice self-control, one week of the month you could say, I'm not going to eat dessert. I'm just going to say no, deny myself for that week. Another week of the month you could say no, deny yourself social media or TV or some of the other things. What are you doing? You're practicing the ability to say no to your own human desires. Work on it. Suppose the month you're working on brotherly kindness, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe in addition to praying God would help you to grow in that area, maybe each week you could pick a different brother or sister in Christ and spend that week finding practical ways to show your love and concern for that Christian or that Christian family. Look, you spend the month practicing brotherly kindness. When you're working on knowledge, maybe during your Bible reading, you could keep a journal and all the things you learn about God's will and about God's ways and about how He wants you to live, you could keep a record of it and try to find practical ways to implement that into your life. What are we talking about? We're talking about making an effort to actually work on these things. And, and there are a lot of other virtues, Christian virtues, besides the one listed in these three verses. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 1 Timothy 6, 11. Righteous, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. What if you spent the rest of your life working on one of those every single month. Can you imagine how much you might grow in godliness? Now, there are a lot of ways you could work on it, but the point is it requires and demands 
the utmost effort for growth and godliness. There's a second principle I want to show you about the growth and godliness. It's in verses 8 and 9. Growth and godliness characterizes the Christian life. Growth in godliness characterizes the Christian life. Now what we see happening in verses 8 and 9 is Peter characterizes, excuse me, contrasts. Peter contrasts a person who possesses these Christian virtues with a person who doesn't. His point is to show us one is living the Christian life while the other isn't. First, in verse 8, we see a person with Christian virtues. Now, in this verse, he supposes two things. First, he supposes this person possesses the virtues that we just listed. You see it in verse 8? If these things are yours, if you possess these virtues in the life, the second thing he supposes is that they are increasing. You see it? If these things are yours, you possess them and they are increasing. In other words, you're not spiritually stagnant, but you're growing and developing in your Christian character. Now, he says, if that's in fact the case, look what he says. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word useless is used in Matthew chapter 20 to describe people who stood around in the marketplace all day and didn't go into the fields to work. They were idle. They were unproductive. The word unfruitful means not producing the desire or the results intended. But notice what Peter said. If you are growing in godliness, if you have these virtues and they're increasing, you will not be useless and unfruitful. In other words, you will be useless and fruitful, productive, producing what you're intended to produce. Now, he's not just talking about being useful and fruitful in general. Notice what he said. Specifically, you'll be useful and fruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the knowledge he's talking about there is knowing Jesus personally. It's coming to know Jesus. This is our conversion or salvation, entering into relationship with Jesus. So, so this is what he's saying. If you are growing in godliness, you will not be useless and unfruitful with respect to your salvation. Now, I want to remind you again of what verses 3 and 4 said. Peter revealed that God saved you for the purpose of godliness. Therefore, what he's saying now is, if you are growing in godliness, you are doing what God saved you to do. You're a productive, fruitful Christian. You see, the Christian life is a life that displays the virtues of Christ. If you possess the virtues of Christ and they are increasing in measure, then you are living the, the Christian life. You are fruitful and useful and productive as a Christian. That's the person who possesses the Christian virtues. But now, in verse 
9, you see a person without the Christian virtues. Here, Peter describes a person who professes to be a believer, but they don't live a godly life. Look what he says in verse 9. In whom these things are not present. That means these godly virtues we're talking about. If those things are not present, notice what he says. This person is blind being nearsighted. The word nearsighted probably has the idea of being short-sighted. This is a person who's focused on the here and now. His concern is fulfilling his present desires. He's oblivious to the past or the future. Now, this person is not concerned with living a godly life. He's concerned only with his pleasure and fulfillment in the present. His short-sightedness, the scripture says in verse 9, makes him blind. Unable to see what truly matters. Look what he says specifically. He's blind having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Now it's important you catch this. The word forgotten doesn't mean the inability to remember. It's used to describe willfully ignoring something. In other words, it is a failure to take into account the meaning and significance of something. And when he talks about the purification from sins, he's pointing back to this person's baptism, which symbolizes you being cleansed from sin, the washing away of your sins. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying. Follow me here. A person who professes to be a Christian, but doesn't live a godly life, is not taking into account the washing away of his sins. Let me say it another way. If you profess to be a Christian, but you don't live a godly life, you're not living like someone who has been forgiven. You are living as if you had never been cleansed of your sin in the first place. Let me say that another way. You are not living the Christian life. He says the person who possesses these virtues and they're increasing, that person is useful and productive living the Christian life. The person who does not possess these virtues is living like someone who has never been forgiven in the first place, an unbeliever. I want you to just suppose something. Suppose you're hired at McDonald's to be a fry cook, okay? But every time the manager sees you, you're over at the grill making hamburgers. Well, you may be busy, but you're not doing what you were hired to do. You are useless and unfruitful as a fry cook. Even though you're doing something, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Listen, if you don't display godly character in your life, no matter what else you may be doing, you are useless and unfruitful as a Christian. Because that's what you are saved to do. You're not doing what God saved you to do if you are not living a godly life. 
This is really simple. If you display godly Christian character in your life, you're living a Christian life. If you don't, you aren't. Very simple. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul said, we came to Christ, we were baptized and came to him for salvation so that we might be able to live a new life. You were saved to live a new life, the Christian life. I want to show you the third principle about growth in godliness. We see it in verses 10 and 11. Growth in godliness is the source of, of assurance. Growth in godliness is the source of assurance. Now, verses 8 and 9 have just told us that it's only those who live a godly life who are living as Christians. Now, verse 10, he says, therefore, in light of that fact, only those who are living godly are living like Christians. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. Calling and choosing. Some versions will say election. Both of those words refer to God's act in salvation. God's election or God's choosing means God making the choice to save someone. His calling means he actually draws that person he has chosen to save to himself. So here's the picture. His calling and choosing means here's a person he's chosen to save and then he actually does save that person the point is God is responsible for salvation not us that's the point and here's what he's saying is be diligent to make sure God has saved you Make sure you are truly born again, that a supernatural saving work of God has taken place in your life. He said, be diligent. That means to exert energy and effort. This is the same word we saw back in verse 5. Applying all diligence, work hard at it, to make sure that you confirm your salvation. Here's all I want you to understand. It is by being diligent in our effort to grow in godliness that we gain certainty of our salvation. Now, when you're growing in godliness, you can be certain of two things. They're in the text. First, you can be certain you will not finally fall away from Christ. Look what it says in verse 10. In doing these things, those practicing those Christian virtues, you will never stumble. Now, you may fall into sin, but you will not fall away from the faith. The word stumble can be used just of falling into sin, but what he means here is committing apostasy abandoning the faith 
and suffering eternal destruction. He says, if you have these Christian virtues and they're growing in your life, you will not fall away from Christ and face eternal destruction. And you see, it says you will never stumble. That's the strongest negative available in the Greek language. And it means never under any circumstances will you fall away from Jesus if you are truly growing in godliness. It basically means when you put forth the energy and effort to grow in Christian character, you are demonstrating that God has genuinely saved you and that you are not in danger of abandoning Christ and facing damnation. Now there's another thing we see here you can also be certain of when you are growing in godliness. You can be certain you will make it into the eternal kingdom. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. First thing we need to establish is what is the eternal kingdom. He refers to the reign of Christ over the new heaven and the new earth. Now the kingdom was established when Jesus came the first time. Remember he said the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. It has come. But its future state, the eternal full kingdom of God will be present when Christ returns. That's what he's talking about here. And he says, if you are growing in godliness, you can be certain that entrance into the eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you. Now notice that word supplied, entrance will be supplied to you, that's passive. What that means is you don't gain entrance into the kingdom, it's given to you. It's granted to you. What he's saying is entrance into the kingdom will be supplied to you by God. You don't gain it, God's going to give it to you. It means to be provided access. God is going to provide you access into the eternal kingdom of God. But notice what he said. You will be abundantly supplied entrance into the kingdom. What in the world does that mean? Abundantly supplied. Let me say it like this. You will be richly welcomed into the kingdom of God. Now follow what he's saying here. In this way, entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. In this way, by practicing these virtues, by having a life that displays the increasing virtues of the Christian life, when you see that, you can trust and be sure that you will be richly welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Rest assured, if you are living a godly life, a life of growth and godliness, you will make it into the kingdom. Now I want you to make sure you understand what he's not saying. He's not saying God's going to grant you entrance into the kingdom because you lived a godly life. It's not what he's saying. He's saying 
Those who live a godly life can rest assured that God will richly welcome them into the eternal kingdom. Not because their godly life earns them salvation. It doesn't and it can't never. They can be assured of a rich welcome into heaven. Why? Because godliness is evidence of salvation. Not because it earns you salvation. It doesn't and it can't. Godliness of life gives you assurance of salvation because godliness of life is evidence that God has transformed you on the inside out. Are you following what I'm saying to you? What he's saying is be diligent in the pursuit of godliness because that's where your assurance of salvation lies. When you see godliness in your life, that's how you know you're truly saved. That's how you know you're going to miss hell and gain heaven. It's the presence of godliness in your life that confirms you will not finally fall away from Christ and you will be richly welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Listen very carefully. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one can ever be saved by living a godly life. Matter of fact, it is only those who are saved who can live a godly life. That's the whole point. If you live a genuinely godly life, you can rest assured you are saved. Because if you weren't, you couldn't. Now, I don't just mean being a morally good person. That's not the same thing as a godly life. Moral goodness is only one aspect of a godly life. But if you're not living a godly life, what if you're not living a godly life? What if you're not pursuing a godly life? Well, if you don't think like a Christian, if you don't act like a Christian, if you don't speak like a Christian, what reason do you have to believe that you are a Christian? Zero. Well, I did. I don't care what you did. It's what you're not doing. It tells me everything I need to know. I'm just going to tell you like this. We all struggle to live a godly life. It's not easy, right? God's given us the, um, the means by which we can and the ability and the desire. Doesn't make it easy. But if you don't even really have a desire to live a holy life, a life pleasing to God, I'm just going to tell you, I can't imagine that you're saved. I can't imagine that the Spirit of God lives in you and you don't care one whit about living a life that honors God. If you don't even have the desire to live godly, you need to confess your sinful lost condition before God. You need to turn to Jesus in faith and plead with him to forgive you and save you. There are too many of us who call ourselves Christians who don't take growth in godliness seriously enough. The problem is, without godliness, there's no real evidence that we are Christians. 
I beg of you today to hear this word from God. Do your best to grow in godliness because that's the evidence that you are a Christian. So take a look at those virtues listed in verses 5 through 7. In which of those areas do you most need to grow? Is it self-control? Is it knowledge? Is it brotherly kindness? Start with one and spend a month praying and working to grow in that area. Then pick another one and spend a month seeking to grow in that area. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, growth in godliness is not going to happen accidentally. Yes, God has given you all that you need for godliness, but you still have to add the effort. Be diligent in the pursuit of godliness. Listen, let me ask you today, do you want assurance of salvation? A godly life is the greatest assurance. Do you want others to be convinced that your faith is real? A godly life will do more to convince them than anything else. Listen, take godliness seriously. Because a godly life is the way you and everyone else will know you're a Christian. Let's pray.